G'day everyone, this is Greg Ryan and welcome to episode 31 of Rare and Resilient 1 in 5000 podcast where we're talking IAARM and today we are incredibly honoured to be joined by Dr Alberto Pena from the International Centre for Colorectal and Neurological Care, the Children's Hospital, Colorado. Welcome Dr Pena. My pleasure. Honor for me to be here with you. Oh, not as much as an honor as it is for me, I can tell you. What I'd like to do, Dr. Pena, is just talk about your life as a pediatric surgeon and just discuss a few issues as we go along. I'm very fortunate to have a copy of your book, Monologues of a Pediatric Surgeon, which is one of the best books I've ever read. And a lot of the questions I'm going to ask is from the book, and we can just discuss things. So if you'd like to just talk about how you got into pediatric surgery in Mexico, Dr. Pena. I finished medical school. Then I went to do my general surgical residency. But during the time that I was doing my general surgical residency, my first son was born. And my first son, it turned out to have something called biliary atresia. We are talking about 1964. And in those years, there were no liver transplant, and the operations that we do for biliary atresia did not exist. But I was uh, desperate, and I asked my professor to help me to contact, at that time, the leader, the pioneer of pediatric surgery in the United States, Dr. Robert Gross at Boston Children's Hospital. But to go from Mexico City to Boston, you needed a lot of money, and I was an, a resident, so we didn't have any money. So my mentor and professor in Mexico gave me money to go to Boston. And that's how I met Dr. Gross. Dr. Gross operated on my son and told me, unfortunately, there is nothing that we can do. Just open the malformation, doesn't have any cure, and your baby most likely will die in about nine months, he said. But during the days that we were in Boston, me and my wife at that time, Dr. Gross was very generous. He did not charge for the, for the operation. He convinced the administrators not to charge anything for the operation. And everybody was extremely generous with us. And during the days that I was there, I asked Dr. Gross if he would allow me to watch him operating. And he's... Uh, other cases, children with other problems. So he allowed me to watch him. I watched him. And for me, it was a, such an impression on me that watching him operating. Because then I, I learned for the first time that operations, surgical operations can be beautiful, can be smooth, can be elegant and effective. So when I watched him after the operation, I said, I want to do that. And that's how I decided to become a pediatric surgeon. And I want to do it in the same way that Dr. Gross is doing it. So, but I went back to Mexico to finish my residency for three more years, but I never forgot the experience at Boston Children's Hospital. And in the book, I call that to be bitten by the spider. Yes. Bitten by the spider when you a human being confronts a unique situation. When you hear a magnificent concert that impresses you the most, when you read a book that really changes your life, when you look at a painting that impresses you so much, when you meet somebody that when the person talks, illuminates, and, and that's that, it's some, it's an experience that you can never forget, that's what I call being bitten by the spider. And I was bitten by the spider so after I finished my training, I asked, I sent a letter to Dr. Gross, said, I want to be trained in your hospital by you. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was very difficult for a Mexican uh, resident to be admitted there. But he said, come, but only in research, only in the laboratory with animals. And I went there, but then something happened, something magic happened. The Vietnam War, the terrible Vietnam War. So they have to recruit surgeons to go to the Vietnam front, including residents from Boston Children's Hospital. And I was there, happened to be there at the right time in the right place. So I, I become a resident. But they said only for one year. 
and I wanted to be another two, two more years. So the, something magic happened again. Uh, the chief surgical resident suffered from tuberculosis. And so he has to quit. And I was there at the same time and I finished my three year training at Boston. So that was why I become a pediatric surgeon. And my son survived for four and a half years, four and a half very painful years, which I think gave me the greatest experience in dealing with parents of children with congenital malformations, helped me to feel empathy and, uh, and try to be in the place of the parents. Every time I see a, a little baby uh, with the, uh, the faces of the young parents, I see myself in their faces. And that, I think that's part of my, my success in, it, in my practice of pediatric surgery. It's, it's very sad what happened to your son, but as you say, to be in the, the shoes of a parent talking to a doctor, the experience of being on the other side of the desk must have molded how you became a surgeon and be able to dealt with the parents, as you say. When did you first get the interest in the colorectal urological side of things, Dr. Pena? During my training at Boston Children's Hospital, in those years, pediatric urology was part of pediatric surgery. It happened something funny. I was in the second year of residency, and a fellow came from Australia, from Melbourne, Australia. And that fellow is Justin Kelly. At the beginning, I did not understand his accent. <laughs> and we were working together, so we, be we become very good friends. He came to my home. I met his wife. And, and he came after he was a fellow of, of the famous Dr. Douglas Stephens from Melbourne, Australia. And that's where I believe I have such an incredible connection with you, because just so to let the listeners know, the two surgeons that did all my surgery for my anorectal malformation was Dr. Douglas Stevens and Dr. Justin Kelly. Dr. Stevens was my doctor for 10 years, and then Dr. Kelly was for the next 10 years at the World Children's Hospital. So to have that connection with you and him is just means so much to me. And when were you born? 1964. Oh, so when this happened... Uh, you were like you were like six years old, like six years old when this happened, and uh, so uh, Justin spent two years at Boston Children's Hospital. But then, when he was there, he was he was talking about Dr. Douglas Stephens' ideas about vanorectal malformations. The paper that that everybody knew about from Dr. Douglas Stephens was published in 1953. Justin Kelly was explaining all the professors at Boston Children's Hospital and, and actually demonstrated some operations with, the, with Dr. Stephen's technique. And then uh, Dr. Kelly went back to, to Australia and I went back to Mexico. And we will re-encounter many years later when I went to, to Melbourne, I had dinner at his house and um, it was a big house with many, many children. I don't remember <laughs> children or something like that. And, and all the children were serving like waiters were serving the dinner to all of them. It was a, a lovely experience. He's a wonderful man. And I was incredibly fortunate to reconnect with Dr. Kelly through the children's hospital. And I hadn't seen him for 30 years. And then when I launched my book, I invited him to come along. And I'll never forget the expression on my mum's face when Dr. Kelly walked in and my mum had seen him for the first time in 30 years. It was just priceless because of what he did for me and my family when I was yeah. growing up. So when you went back to Mexico, Dr. Pena, is that when you started to really deal with more ARM patients? Yeah, I went back to Mexico and I was very fortunate to become surgeon-in-chief of the National Institute of Pediatrics. And then for eight years, from 1972 to 1980, I was doing what I learned from Justin Kelly. At that time, I did not meet Douglas Stevens. I just heard about him. But I worked from 1972 to 1980, following the principles that I learned from Justin Kelly. But then I have questions about the, the anatomy, of the anorectal malformations, and then I decided to present my doubts. I was questioning the state-of-the-art established knowledge about anorectal malformations. 
And that took me to a meeting in Colorado Springs to present my doubts. And that was, my, my presentation was not welcome because everybody <laughs> loved the gold principle established by Dr. Douglas Stephens. Dr. Stephens was there. Dr. Durham Smith was there. And let me tell you something. Dr. Douglas, Douglas Stephens and Dr. Durham Smith and I, at the end, disagree in our concepts of the anatomy. But they, both of them were real gentlemen. Even when, I, when Dr. Durham Smith saw that I was in complete disagreement with the anatomy concepts, Dr. Durham Smith was the president of the College of Surgeons in Australia and extended me and, him, and my wife an invitation to go around Australia for three weeks, lecturing, presenting my ideas. That, that So our relationship was always cordial, always. And in addition, Douglas Stephens had a great sense of humor. See? Yes. It was more serious, but Douglas Stephens, our relationship continued, always would make, were making jokes, and it was until the very end of his life. That's wonderful. And we go back to when you first performed the piece up in 1980. Can you give us a bit of a background of how you got to the piece up and how the first surgeries and all that went along? Yes. The basic idea of Dr. Douglas Stephens and Dr. Durham Smith about the anorectal malformations is that there was, supposedly, there was a particular muscle sling called puborectalis muscle. And that if we wanted to achieve bowel control in our patients, we're supposed to preserve that particular sling. And we're supposed to pass the rectum, pull the rectum down within the limits of that sling. The sling was like that. We're supposed to pass the, the rectum through that and behind, behind the urethra. But unfortunately, the operation that they, uh, that they proposed was a rather blind operation. It was a small incision and we were supposed to make a blind tunnel. And I was very un unhappy about that blind tunnel. And then I questioned the anatomy and then uh, in, uh, in a place in the United States, in a place called Colorado Springs, near where I live now. And my, as I told you, my paper was criticized, but I went back to Mexico and decided to find out what was the real anatomy of that area? Everybody talked about the pure rectalis, but there, was no, there were no pictures of that structure. There were no photographs. And, and I was young, and uh, you know how you feel when you're in the classroom, and the, the teacher says, explain something, and everybody says that they understood, and you did not. Yes. So you're afraid to say, excuse me, I didn't understand that. Everybody was talking about the pure rectalis, but I said, but who saw that muscle? Where is the picture, the photograph? Went back to Mexico and then in August 10, 1980, I decided to work with an electrical stimulator that allows you to see the contractions of the muscles and, and open in a very wide ma manner in between both bottles. Really see the entire anatomy and see it with my own eyes and, and demonstrate the anatomy of the sphincter. And what I found, there, was, there is no puberectalis sling, at, at least not in the way that Dr. Douglas Stephen described it. But in addition, I didn't know that I was opening a Pandora's box because at the same time that I was doing that out of curiosity, I was looking for the first time at the very particular way in which the rectum connects to the posterior urethra. The posterior urethra in us males it's a very delicate structure, but because that's where we have the prostate, the seminal vesicles, the vas deferens, and the nerves that, that give erection and bladder function. And the separation of the rectum from the urethra was done blindly in the past. So now for the first time, you could see exactly the way it joins and exactly how delicate is that were those structures. The prostate in a little baby is about this size. And if you are not careful, you simply take the prostate from the baby. And then now we had explanation for all those young adults that have no sexual life, that have no erection, that have no ejaculation, that have urinary incontinence. 
So, and that was a bonus because I, I, I opened that way to clarify an anatomic concept and I found many other things, see? That was in Mexico. When you are born in a country like Mexico, it's not easy that the international surgical community accepts your ideas coming from Mexico, you know? And then the next step was what is called the 90% the perspiration that you heard about. People talk about the 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration. So the, the idea was there, the findings were there, but now I have to document that, take pictures, movies, uh, di diagrams, artist work, and pay my trip to go to international meetings to convince all the surgical community about this. And that, that is difficult. That was not easy. And then no, Dr. No. Stephens went to Mexico. He, he, no, did he? He called, said, I want to go there to see. I said, okay. He, he said he, he was much older than me, but he asked me to call him Douglas. So I called him Douglas. He came to, to, uh, to my hospital and we spent three days working, opening patients like that. And a little anecdote is that he, we were in my office and uh, we were having a conversation in the hospital. And then somebody called me. I said, Douglas, wait for me here. I'll be back. He was sitting there in my office and looked at my bookcase and saw his, his book, Douglas Stephen. Yes. That time, I already have read twice the book of Douglas Stephen. But I have the bad habit of making notes in the margins of the, of the books. When, when I don't agree with the author, I say, this is stupid. I don't like this, blah, blah, blah. All <laughs> and, and the book of Dr. Stephens was full of those notes, my notes, negative notes about the concept of Douglas Stephens. But it was in, my notes were in Spanish. So <laughs> Stephens could not understand. <laughs> he opened the door of my office and there was one of my residents passing by. And he said, psh, 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 come, come, come. Here. Tell me what Dr. Peña wrote here. And the resident looked at that and he looked at Dr. Stephens, got very nervous and said, Dr. Peña wrote that he agrees with you and everything. <laughs> so intimidated by Dr. Douglas Stephens. Oh, that's priceless. That's absolutely priceless, Dr. Peña. So you performed the first PSAP in 1980, wasn't it? In Mexico? 1980, yes. Yes. After that, when did the PSAP get accepted in the general colorectal community? I operated the first case in 1980. I published the first paper in 1982. It gained ground little by little. It was not immediate, it took time. So I would say that about very soon, the pediatric surgeons learned about my paper and they started receiving visitors from United States to watch the operation and more and more. It took about, I would say about two or three years to gain acceptance by most pediatric surgeons all over the world. And you started at Schneider's Children's Hospital in New York in 1985. They keep coming from, from United States, mainly visitors to watch. And then they, I started receiving invitations to move to United States. And then the first invitation came from, from Atlanta, Georgia, and the second one from Connecticut. And I resisted. I didn't want to leave Mexico because of my family and because I love Mexico. The third invitation came from New York and things were not going well in Mexico in terms of economic terms and, and my children will benefit from the education in the United States. So I decided to accept the invitation and move on July of 1985 to Long Island, New York. Right. Around that time, there was a meeting. Could you give us a talk about the Cook meeting? Well, before Creek and Beck, Dr. Douglas Stephens organized a meeting in Wingspread. All right, yes. Near Chicago. I was, I was sitting in Mexico. And he, he, had a, he was well known all over the world. So he invited all pediat pediatric surgeons that were particularly interested in unrectal malformations. And so came people from Japan, came from India, from, from all over the world in Wingspread. And there, they, um, of course, I was there and I was presenting my ideas and there was some reluctance from most of the people that followed Dr. Douglas Stephens. But again, as I told you, he knew that I was thinking something completely different to him. And yet 
he I was like the special guest there, and so and uh, I I was able to convince Dr. Douglas Stephens and Dr. Doram Smith a little bit of my ideas, not completely, but a little bit. Dr. Doram Smith then wrote a paper in the Journal of Pediatric Surgery that, and the title of the paper was, uh, is, it, is, it is true that the baby, that the baby needs another, uh, a bath but, uh, and, and we have to change the water of the bath, but let's don't throw the baby away, Some, something like that. So, <laughs> so, so he, they accepted my ideas, but not, not completely. And then many years later, that was the Crickenbeck again by Dr. Douglas. But at that time, Douglas was already uh, over 90 years old at that time in Crickenbeck, Germany, Germany. Right, yep. But, but Dr. And, and at that point, I was able to convince all the participants of uh, something very important, uh, Greg, which is the classification of unrectal madness. Yeah, that and was going to be my next, next question about the classifications, yes. In the 70s, Dr. Douglas Stephens in the textbook proposed a classification, but it was a rather complex classification. And, uh, and the rest of the surgical community was still talking about high anorectal malformation and low anorectal malformation. And others more sophisticated talk about high, intermediate, and low. But that's too simplistic because things in life are not like that. It's like saying that human beings are divided into bad guys and good guys. You know, that's, that's, it's not that way, unfortunately. Yeah. If it was that way, you and I would go to fight against the bad guys and we'll kill them. But that's <laughs> the way it is. That's not the way it is. So the, the um, I was able to, to explain that this, everything is a spectrum and, and propose a different classification. And I was able to convince them. But still, there was some other areas in which I did I was not successful but it was a big progress in Crickenbeck and it's the even even today or well, just step forward to today even today some surgeons still classified as high intermediate or low don't they unfortunately the ones who aren't the specialists and I know a lot of parents when they see the the, the classifications of the rectovestibular or rectal vagina, etc., they they've never heard that because all they've been told is high or low. It's it's still very confusing for some, isn't it? That's right. You see, um, um, the um, and for, um, there is something that I want to share with you that is extremely important. You mentioned the parents, the. Um, the problem with anorectal malformations is that it's a malformation that occurs in about one in every 5,000 children. Yes. So, they, so, so the, the irony at present time is that countries like India like, uh, or countries in Africa or in Central America have many, many, many cases of anorectal malformations because they have many children and they don't have the material resources and they don't have the necessary training. And then in countries, so-called advanced countries like Scandinavia, Germany, Switzerland, including United States, the number of births is decreasing. And therefore the number of cases of anorectal malformation is getting lower. <coughs> and as a consequence, the surgeons don't have enough cases to, to, to have experience with the malformation. And they, many of them refuse to give up. They want to do it, you see? So, the, so um, that's the problem that we are living at present time. And I think the parents, the parents of children with anorectal malformation, here, here's where you, where you are very important in your, in your job. The parents are the ones who can make pressure to the governments to help to centralize the cases of un uh, unusual malformations. In England, already centralized the cases of biliary atresia because there are so very few cases. So they say by law, all those cases go to one specific hospital where there's a group of people that will be <coughs> become experts in that malformation. 
So, but that is a political problem, you know, because it's surgeons want to keep doing everything. But in, in Italy, for instance, uh, one mother of a child, Dalia, Dalia Minov, she has been working for over 20 years, is very active. Some surgeons don't like her. And I make jokes to her and I said, Dalia, be careful. Someday your body is going to appear floating in the <laughs> river. <laughs> so, but the parents, are, the mothers are powerful. When they, they fight for the children, they can do miracle things. So force the, to all the chiefs of pediatric surgery in different countries to declare how many cases do you have per year in your hospital? And how many surgeons work in that hospital? And therefore, how many cases of unrectum affirmations each one of those surgeons is doing per year? And then the question would be, would you let your son or your grandson with an unrectum affirmation to be operated by a surgeon that is doing one case per year? That would be the question. The, and the answer is obvious, you see? So that's, that's what's happening at, at present. And I think we should be active about that and to verbalize that, to talk about that. People don't like to talk about that, but it's very important. From my perspective with our One in 5,000 Foundation, we will do anything we can to lobby, even in Australia now at the Royal Children's Hospital, uh, Associate Professor Sebastian King has established a colorectal pelvic reconstruction service, which is based on what, what you did in Cincinnati. And it, I really like our listeners to hear the impact that you've had globally, Dr. Pena. Can you give us an, a bit of a brief insight into the countries that you've visited over the years and the doctors you've trained and the patients that you've operated on all over the world? Travelling all over the world. I never expected that I would be doing that. It has been one of the greatest satisfactions uh, that I ever had, meeting pediatric surgeons all over the world. I, I love pediatric surgery, and I believe that is the best of all surgical specialties. And, uh, and something very important I want to tell you. In pediatric surgery, there are malformations that you operate, and the operation is technically easy. But the care, post-operative care, is extremely complicated. For instance, diaphragmatic hernia, a defect in the diaphragm. The surgical technique is easy. You just have to close the defect. But the, the post-operative care of those patients is extremely complicated because you need intensive care, pulmonologists, cardiologists, many important technical resources. Now, anorectal malformations is not like that because the post-operative care of our patients is relatively simple. But what is key in unrectal malformation is the details of the surgical technique. The details of the surgical technique. And that's, see, if, if it was diaphragmatic hernia, you could train everybody to do it well. What you need is a good intensive care unit. But in unrectal malformation, the details are extremely important. And that's why from the moment I moved to Long Island, New York, I, start, I created those courses with operative demonstrations, not theoretical courses, operative demonstrations. That's because I believe that a surgeon can only convince another surgeon with a live demonstration, really. You go to the meetings and the international meetings and surgeons present beautiful videos, photographs, that showing a surgical technique, but is not representative of the, of the real operation. You want to see the real operation to see it. So I decided to do that. And there I started having invitations and always I went to other countries to operate with them and demonstrate and you see the faces of the young surgeons really seeing, and then, then you realize that when you can write a paper, you can write, make diagrams, but the, and then the surgeons go ahead and try the technique, but they end up doing something completely different. Yeah. And see the details. And with live demonstrations, you can see the problems that you can get into. And you and the, the audience can see how you solve those problems. And then, and so, so that's why I have, and I also made beautiful videos. And uh, so I enjoy very much those, those courses. 
And I miss them now that with the pandemia, that now we are all, everything internet, but not, not live demonstrations. Hopefully we could go back to that too, because you can see the faces of the young surgeon really seeing the operation. And so that's very important. I was incredibly fortunate to be invited by yourself and Dr. Bischoff two or three years ago to attend your Pena course in Colorado. And you invited me to give a talk as, and I was the first patient that's ever spoken at one of your courses and, and the impact by sitting in the courses and seeing the young doctors and, and you even perform surgeries up on the screen there for them it was just remarkable mind you i couldn't watch it i couldn't watch the surgeries they were too too hard for me to deal with <laughs> i i fantasize and i like to believe that i try to replicate the beating of the spider with the, with the young surgeons you know that they when finish an operation they are impressed and that i i have the feeling that i achieved part of that in my trips all over the world so, Dr. Pena, can you tell me about how it came about that you moved to Cincinnati and set up the multidisciplinary centre in Cincinnati? Yes. I worked for 20 years in Long Island Jewish Hospital in New York. And as you know very well, anorectal malformations don't come alone. They come as associated to other defects in different parts of the body. percent of them have urologic problems, and then 30% have spinal problems and orthopedic And um, 50% of them would need the, the service of a gastroenterologist eventually in life. And ladies have the need of a, gy a gynecologist, and 25% of them need a neurosurgeon. But it's not just a neurosurgeon. It has to be a neurosurgeon knowledgeable on the problems related with anorectal malformation. It's not just a urologist. It has to be a urologist familiar with anorectal malformations. It's not just an orthopedic surgeon. It has to be an orthopedic surgeon familiar. So in Long Island Jewish, there were specialized people, but every time I asked for help from those specialized people, I saw a different face. There was not one person willing to be fully dedicated to this, you know, to see the same consultant because uh, my patients are, were very specialized patients. So I started feeling the need to create a group of people, to create a center integrated by those specialized people. Pediatric surgeons that become fully dedicated to anorectal malformations. That's, there are many colorectal centers at present time, but the surgeons are still not fully dedicated to that. They are still doing general pediatric surgery in addition to colorectal. In Long Island, I was doing colorectal and also doing chest and abdomen and all that. Then the question is, let's go to other institutions because the Schneider Children's Hospital in New York was very small children's hospital. And I presented my ideas in Boston. I presented my ideas in Pittsburgh and I presented my ideas in Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, we almost got it to, get, to create a colorectal center. But there was always an opposition. You, you'll be surprised. There was opposition from general pediatric surgeons. They, they, they were afraid of losing their cases. Oh, dear me. And then finally, we met Dr. Richard Asiskan from Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And he immediately said, yes, let's do it. And he went back to Cincinnati, talked to the CEO. And then he called me and said, come here and be prepared to make a 15 minute presentation to the CEO. And I went there, presented 15 minutes in his office and the CEO said, okay, let's do it. I said, I heard this many times and I was already a little discouraged because so many times I traveled to different places to present this idea and it was rejected. And it, it sounded too easy that the CEO said, let's do it. And he did it. And, and that's why we created the first colorectal center. And, and the colorectal center was a success. And we attracted more, more patients. And then and, uh, we were able to have a good collaboration with urology, a good collaboration with orthopedics, with neurosurgery, and so forth. 
the, and, um, and other institutions in the United States and later on all over the world started creating those colorectal centers because it is very obvious that if you concentrate in a specific problem and you go deep into that problem, you learn more and we have more chances to make contributions to the, uh, on the subject, you know? So, and if you repeat the same operation many times, you become, you, you become a better surgeon for that particular operation. So it was very successful to the, the, the uh, colorectal center. And now I don't know how many are in the United States, but there must be like 10 so-called centers. Not all of them are fully dedicated, but they are, it's a big change. I think I'm happy about that. Yeah. Well, you are the pioneer of setting up those centres. And what we were talking about earlier, parents and that need to advocate so greatly for their children to get a specialist to treat their child. It'd be wonderful if we could get these centres all over the world, couldn't we? But Because at the moment, they seem to be centralised mostly in America. And I know when I was visited Colorado, there was a family from overseas with, had travelled to see you to be treated. And it, it's so important to try and get these centres around the world, isn't it? That's right. And the, the parents, you know, the, the parents of children with anorectal malformations, the parents may not know much about medicine or surgery, but they have something very important, which is common sense, which people say common sense is the less common of the senses, right? Common sense and also a great sincere interest in the benefit of the children. And therefore uh, they detect and the doctors, whether the doctor knows what he's talking about or not. So, and they are very perceptive about that, you know? And so they feel very frustrated when they go to a doctor. They even say words that the doctors don't know. In 1982, I operated for the first time a cloaca in a female cloaca. And then, and so nowadays, many of the patients that were operated from a cloaca, when they become adults, they go to a gynecologist and they say, doctor, I was born with a cloaca. And they get in shock when the doctor says cloaca, what is that? You've <laughs> heard of that. So, so the, the, that takes us into an, the other big thing that we are promoting, which is the transition of care, very much related with you. That's extremely important, extremely important. And it's not only re- related with anorectal malformations, it's related with everything. Everything, any congenital malformation has adult repercussions, and we are very concerned and very interested about that. Transition of care is one of the most passionate subjects I have. As you well know that in the past, when patients get to the end of their time at the Pediatric Children's Hospital, in essence, we've been abandoned because the adult colorectal surgeons, really, they have no idea what to do with this. And they say, oh, no, you're a pediatric issue. You're a pediatric issue. But now we're adults. We have our adult group, Dr. Pena, and it's the, some of the stories that I, I read from people who just join our adult group who have been, who've lived their lives just not having any assistance at all once they leave the pediatric system. And I know you and Dr. Bischoff at Colorado are pushing this greatly and you see adult patients and it just makes a difference to our lives. Now, Dr. Pena, you discussed something called moral authority. Can you tell me what you believe moral authority is? Yes. I love the concept of moral authority, and I think it's extremely important in every aspect of life. Moral authority, we can talk about moral authority in, the, in patients like you and moral authority in doctors like me, see? A person that works in the field cultivating rice or corn or whatever has moral authority on agriculture. And you can see it in his hand, person that work with his hands in the land. So he has moral authority. Even if I learn a textbook on agriculture, I have no moral authority in agriculture because I don't work in, I don't work there. Then I like to say that patients like you, persons like you, you have something very important, which is moral authority on the subject. More authority than anybody else, more than the doctors, because you have been there. 
I like to believe that I'm sensitive to the pain and suffering of the patients, but I have never been there. So I can imagine how you suffer through your entire life, but I cannot say that I have moral authority as a patient because I, I was never in, in your place. You, see, you have moral authority. And in surgery, in, in, in pediatric surgery, you have moral authority in two territories, one in the operating room and two seeing patients in the clinic and in the hospital, dealing with patients. Because there are many doctors that are very talented, very intellectual, they are erudites, they read a lot, they know a lot, but they have no moral authority. You will be surprised, sometimes you see doctors talking in a, in a Congress, presenting beautiful slides, and they are very good at talking, they were educated in the best centers, but, but then you go and visit them and you see that they don't really see patients. You know, they once in a while they see a patient or they operate on a patient and they let others take care of the patient after the operation. So that's not moral authority. You see moral authority is something that you get. I believe that in theory it would be nice if all doctors at some point suffer some sort of a medical condition, either the doctor or the relatives, so they can understand what the patients are going through. That, that's a very, very important. We are living in an era of this depersonalization of medicine and surgery, where you go to a doctor and you find a doctor looking at the computer, doesn't even look at your eyes. And they are writing in the computer and they ask questions and then they write a prescription and that's it, you see? I'm a little romantic about that, but I believe that looking at the eyes as your eyes and listening to you, you, Greg, not only a patient with a particular defect, you as a human being, who, who, who are you? Who is your father? Who is your mother? Where do you live? What makes you cry? What makes you happy? I'm very interested in that. Without that ingredient, medicine and surgery would be another technical discipline, you know, like a carpenter or something like that. But if you take a little child to the, to the operating room, you should know that you are taking Johnny and you know that his father is called Peter and they work as a carpenter and the mother is done that. So if you don't have that ingredient, that component, I don't understand how to practice medicine and surgery. And I'm very concerned about the, the medical patient relationship. And I think it's a problem that starts in the young people in finding their vocation. Many uh, human beings go into medicine because, because somebody told them that you make a lot of money, because they want to be important, because be, for many reasons, except one, the most important, you are passionate about that, passionate about that. If you don't have passion for something, you don't enjoy what you are doing. And if you don't enjoy what you are doing, you suffer yourself and you make the others who surround you, you make them suffer. And you make the patient suffer also, you see. So yeah. it's extremely important. Thank you so much, Dr. Pena, for talking about that. It, it really touches me because I had an incident about five years ago now. My former adult colorectal surgeon had retired. And so I was a bit lost. So I went and saw another one. And the doctor had saw my records. And he looked at me and he said, Greg, I wouldn't touch you because you're a train wreck down there. And what that did to me emotionally was just, it's, I still get emotional about it now because I walked in there with this hope that I've had that, I'll have that doctor to look after me with my anorectal malformation. And, and then to be told that you're a train wreck was just devastating emotionally for me, I must admit. So I wish all doctors had the same attitude as you have, Dr. Pena. The, the, um, if, um, if we are confronting with a patient that and we are surgeons, we like to operate, but if there is no operation that helps you, doesn't mean that I cannot do something else, you know? If there is no, if I can tell you, I don't have an operation to improve you, but I can, let me think about how to try to help you. And that's the way we created what is called the bowel management program. The bowel management program we don't offer the patients to make them normal, but we offer them to keep them completely clean and dry for 24 hours a day. 
and we are successful most of the times, you see? And that, but doctors don't want to do that because it's a time consuming, because it doesn't pay, and because it's not elegant. They think it's a matter of the, the nurses should be doing, but without the guidance of a doctor, it's not possible to do it well. Yeah, oh, the bowel management program has been one of the greatest revolutions in in colorectal surgery, thanks to yourself introducing it and Dr. Levitt back in Cincinnati as well. Because to be clean is the most important thing for a child. And I know growing up, I was known as the smelly kid because I would soil. So I was even chatting to a parent last night and their child's approaching school age and they're just the the anxieties they have about the child going to school and having accents and that it's it's overwhelming isn't it and you would have seen that many times yes we have um, it's been a, a great uh, trip this my my profession and learn many things about the suffering patients but and and another another very important concept Greg, the follow-up of the patients I, I, I'm in a kind of crusade saying we should follow patients until we die, until we die. Don't tell everybody, but here in the basement of my home, I have my personal notes about each, each one of my patients. So when somebody calls me and says, Dr. Peña, you operated me in 1983 and you blah, blah, I go there, I got my own notes. I keep the photographs of the, those children. Uh, and the and the Christmas cards that they send me, and uh, and I, I show them that, and that that's very refreshing for them because then I did not forget them, and I, and I love to hear from them. I really love to hear from them, and I recommend to the young pediatric surgeons always follow your patients to the last consequences. Number one, you get the normal satisfactions. I receive invitations for weddings for, for uh, um, uh, graduations of the university, great satisfactions about that. And also, because then you is the greatest feedback about all the sequela from the things that we did. You know, that's a, a great feedback to know exactly where we are, what happens to our patients. And uh, so I encourage everybody to contact. I'm retired for the last 14 months, but I keep answering. I said, I, I, I remember you, I love you, and I like you, and say hello to your father and your mother and so forth. That's very important. Well, I'm sure that I'm sure there's going to be a lot of your patients that listen to this uh, uh, podcast, Dr. Pena, who will be wanting to write to you now. So how do they contact you? You can contact me by, by email. You have my email. I have your email. So anyone who would like to contact Dr. Pena directly, his email is penyabischoffcolped at gmail.com. I'll spell that. P-E-N-A-B-I-S-C-H-O-F-F-C-O-L-P-E-D at gmail.com. And I, I have my cellular phone all the time with me. And the number is... 513-807-2353. That's incredible, Dr. Pena. You might regret saying that because your phone, you might get too many phone calls now. <laughs> yes, I will answer. I will yeah. try to answer. It's my pleasure. Sure. Yeah. Now, Dr. Pena, in 2016, you and Dr. Bischoff moved to Colorado to set up the International Centre for Colorectal and Neurological Care there. Can you tell me how that came about and the services that you offer in Colorado now? Yes, the Surgeon-in-Chief of the University Hospital, and that is our chief. He welcomed our ideas, particularly the ideas of transitional care because we need the support of, uh, of adult surgeons, you know? So he, he welcomed our ideas and that's why we came here. And we are very happy because it's a very friendly place and it's a beautiful hospital, of course. And we, uh, particularly Andrea, Andrea has more power to recruit other specialized people. The urologists have been great with us. We have a great help with gastroenterology 
not only professional health, but we are friends of them, orthopedic surgeons, and, and then the university hospital. I, I went many times to the university hospital to operate on a 65-year-old lady or a 70-year-old gentleman, and we are teaching them about congenital problems. And we also invite them to come to children's hospital so they can see what we are doing because those patients eventually will go to the adult hospital. So, and we have great relationship with gynecology. Gynecologists, they are very friendly to us. We are seeing patients operated by Dr. Hardy Hendren. I don't know if you heard that name, Hardy. Dr. Hendren, a, yes. A, a leader in the treatment of uh, urogenital problems of patients with anorectal malformations, a professor of mine also. And we see some of the patients operated by him many, many years ago. Ladies come here, they are 60 years old, we take care of them. Oh, that's wonderful. Dr. Pena, for someone who's been so long in the field of colorectal surgery, what do you think about where we are at the moment and going forward, the advancements that may be able to take place in anorectal malformation patients? There's a lot of work to be done. First of all, not everybody in the world benefits from the expertise of a real colorectal pediatric surgeon. In other words, we have to continue talking and promoting the idea of a specialized people dedicated only to this so they can reach the degree of uh, expertise to benefit the patients. That's going to take many more years. And uh, those younger colorectal pediatric surgeons have to continue uh, fighting for that. And the parents of children with anorectal malformations have to fight at a government level about that. That's number one. Number two, we have to, to fight also to promote the creation of more colorectal centers. By doing that, our goal would be that everybody has the level of care, the, the best level of care. But then even having the best level of care, we continue suffering from, from this because, uh, because patients will continue coming with new cases with anorectal malformation. Now, if you look into the future, now let's dream. Now let's dream. Let's fantasize. So in the future, we have to advance much more in prenatal diagnosis. You know? We have to, to go to, to make as early as possible beyond any ethical concerns. It, it, there is no question that we have to make earlier and earlier diagnosis to allow the parents to make their own decisions. That's number one. And number two, we are eventually... We have to go into genetics. You know, and I'm not going to see that. Perhaps you will not be able to see that. <laughs> but keep in mind that in our own lifetime, great, the advances that medicine and surgery have done have been beyond my imagination. I never thought that we'll be having the benefits that we have from science and technology. So I'm sure that we'll come up with, a, with many solutions. For instance, patients with a with no bowel control, that we do bowel management, if we find a drug, which is relatively easy to find a drug that paralyzes the bowel for 24 hours, those 24 hours, the human being will not be able to pass any stool. And then take another little pill that you take in 15 minutes and you empty your colon in a very, in a very uh, precise manner. I'm sure that's feasible. You know why it's not has been implemented? Because, because in spite of the fact that we keep saying ladies and children first, the truth is that that's, that's not true. First come males and all males. If you have a prostatic problem, they are willing to, that pace, you know, if you pediatric, adult urologist taking care of adult, if you talk about penile prosthesis, you know, that a lot of money goes there. If you say for children with this problem, nobody puts money into that, see? But it's coming, it's coming. I'm sure there will come up great advances in the field. And but always will be the need of having humane uh, doctors taking care of the patients and helping them because nothing, nothing is better than holding the hand of a patient so the patient can feel that we are really there with them. And that's a great satisfaction for us also. Finally, there's going to be a lot of parents that will be listening to this podcast today 
who will just be thinking, I wish Dr. Pena was my doctor, <laughs> firstly. What would you say to a parent of an, a young ARM child now about their future? And what would you be your greatest advice to that parent? First of all, I would find out the specific, specific malformation that the patient has. Uh, because that, with the, uh, with the um, experience that we gain from following thousands of patients until adult life, nowadays, babies born today, Craig, within three days doing simple studies, we can tell the parents where it's going to be the future of the baby. Right. That, that's a big difference with the past. You know better than anybody else, you know the why. Because the tra- traditionally, this is, here is the drama of the parents of children with anorectal malformation. It's a young couple. They are married. She becomes pregnant. They have great expectations about the, the baby coming. The best experience in the world, having a baby. And then, boom, the baby is born. And a doctor shows up in the room and says, your baby has no anus. Because of the nature of the malformation, this is not a popular malformation. People talk about cardiac conditions. They talk about, they, they learn about that. But about anorectal malformation, people don't talk much about that. Whatever your baby has a cardiac condition, you can share that with the neighbor. But if it's anorectal malformation, you don't share that. As a consequence, the public doesn't know much about that. And then someone shows up in the room and says, but don't worry, we'll operate on your baby. And they go ahead and operate on the baby. The, the, the operation was successful. You can take the baby home. And the parents take the baby home and the baby is pooping. And, uh, and, and the baby family is very happy. But then by the age between two and three years of age, the mother that has common sense and interest in the baby, she says, there is something wrong here. And then they go to the pediatrician and the pediatrician sends, prescribes some medication, laxative, Nothing changes. And then they go to the gastroenterologist and the gastroenterologist orders some uh, manometric studies and MRIs and this and that and prescribes another laxative or something and nothing changes. And then they go, by this time, the child is already five years old, seven years old, and they keep going from doctor to doctor. And then the child already is having problems, psychological problems, discrimination, segregation at school, problems and, and social problems psychological problems. Then they go to the psychologist and the psychologist runs some tests. And guess what? He founds a lot of abnormalities. Of course, if, you, if I had those problems, I would, be, I would not be neurotic. Perhaps I would be psychotic, you know? So he founds abnormalities, send the patient to the, to the psychiatrist. And then the psychiatrist says, well, your child's trying to manipulate the parents by pooping in the living room and in the, see? See, and, and keeps going like that. So the, the, those patients come to us and then we, we see the patient and said, how is your sacrum in your baby, in your child? And the parents said, sacrum? Never heard of that. Doctor. Yes. So if I had seen that patient when he was three days old, I would tell them your baby was born with no sacrum, with very poor sacrum, and would never have bowel control. But by the age, in the first three years of life, he's in diapers like any other baby. But the moment you decide to send him to school, I'm committed to send your baby to school completely dry and clean. So that's, that's a big difference. We are not curing the patient. And, but in addition, the parents already know what's going to happen, you see? They are, and they understand the problem. So that's a big difference at present time, you know? So the, if, I, if I see a patient, we see... The first thing is to find out exactly the malformation and then start from there and telling them exactly the truth and try to help them. That's incredible insight into how you treat anorectal malformation patients and and it will help parents know in Dr. Pena. Look, I can't thank you enough for giving your valuable time to us. I'm happy to see you well. I'm happy to see you smiling. That's very important. It makes me feel better about you. I admire you and please accept my admiration and respect for all what you are doing. Okay. 
Oh, that's that's wonderful, Dr. Pena. I appreciate that. You are doing a great job. And um, you can imagine when you were 10 years old, if you found uh, an adult, a person that says, you know something, son, I have been there. I know, I know how you feel. That's a, it's a, because one of the worst things that happens to our patients is that they feel lonely. They feel that nobody has that. Uh, so that's very important. We don't want the kids of today to be like we were when we grew up alone. And just to know that they aren't alone is the greatest gift we can give them, I believe. That's very good. All right, Dr. Pena. So thank you once again for giving up your precious time. I can't thank you, sir. And I look forward to seeing you in Arizona. It's very good. Very. Thank you for everything, Craig. Congratulations. Thank you, Dr. Pena. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.